Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. We're going to do a segment here, an hour of Conversations with Great Minds. And our guest today is Professor Sophie Bjork-James, Ph.D., an anthropologist and assistant professor of the practice, anthropology department of Vanderbilt University, author of the new book, The Divine Institution, White Evangelicalism's Politics of the Family. She's also the co-editor of Beyond Populism, Angry Politics in the Twilight of Neoliberalism. Website is Sophie Bjork James, S O P H I E B J O R K J A M E S dot com, and S Bjork James is her Twitter handle. Professor Bjork James, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining us, and thank you for writing this brilliant book. I'm, I'm very pleased to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I'm fascinated by the rise of white evangelicalism and Let's begin by defining terms, because this is a relatively recent phenomenon. In your book, you, you, in some ways, kind of track it back to the 1940s, but point to other milestones. Exactly how do you define you know, the subject of your book, white evangelicalism? Yeah, and this is a, it's, it's a complicated uh, question, because we define it in different ways, like uh, different groups define it in different ways. So the theological definition of evangelicalism is Christians who identify as being born again, prioritize evangelizing, and see the Bible as either literal or, um, you know, like a key source um, that shouldn't be contested. Uh, So that's the theological uh, definition. However, when we use it in, like when it's used in um, politics and when it's used by the press, uh, often they really when they when evangelicals are referred to, they actually mean white evangelicals because if we look at just the theological definition, most African American Christians fit that definition, but don't identify as evangelical because they see they tend to see evangelicalism as about politics and often about whiteness uh, or even racism, and so don't most African American Christians don't identify as evangelical, and so. When it's used theologically, right, it's about this series of this kind of combination of beliefs. But when it's used by the press and in politics, it's used to explain a particular religious movement that is vastly majority white uh, and also holds a this this combination of theological beliefs. Uh, and that's what I really I try to highlight in the book is that we can't think about this religious movement outside of being also a racial movement. And, and to what extent did this grow out of things, or at least the, the strength and popularity of it, um, grow out of things like the Brown v. Board decision in 1954 and the movement for racial justice, uh, you know, that really began in a, in a big way in the United States. I mean, it, it had been going back all the way to the, to the founding of the Republic in the, in the abolition movement and whatnot, but uh, particularly after, during and after World War II. Yeah, so if, if we think back to the 1970s, the conservative political movement in the United States is pretty much in a shambles, right? The 
kind of segregation forever uh, politicians had all lost. They all knew that they couldn't gain a national platform, much less a regional platform, being overtly racist. Uh, there was a history of economic elitism, but it wasn't really growing in, in influence. Uh, and so what you had is a series of uh, politically savvy um, a- activists and advocates who saw in white evangelicalism the possibility of a political movement. So before the late 1970s, white evangelicals were a pretty diverse uh, religious movement, right? It was really about these theological definitions of being born again and evangelizing and, you know, seeing the Bible as literal or at least like the center of one's um, kind of intellectual life. Uh, And, right, Jimmy Carter was the first evangelical who elected into the presidency, uh, representing a very liberal evangelical tradition. Uh, but it was really in defending segregation that first formed white evangelicals into a political movement. So after Brown v. Board of Education, uh, hundreds of private Christian schools were formed across the southern United States, across um, the whole United States, but concentrated in the South uh, as a way of allowing for the continuation of segregated schools in that they were um, de facto segregated. So under Carter, uh, he directed the IRS to start uh, sh- making those schools prove that they were uh, desegregated in fact and not just in principle. And so the IRS started to threaten these schools for losing their tax-exempt status if they couldn't prove that they were desegregating. And that formed a national movement, um, primarily across the South, um, but there was a number of organizations fighting fighting this legislation, or fighting um, this, this IRS tactic, uh, and they were very successful, and they really mobilized um, groups all across the South, and out of, after they um, started to see significant successes uh, in those act- activities, Jerry Falwell uh, kind of helped to shift the framework away from defending our private Christian schools to defending Christian culture, um, which was de facto white Christian culture, from this new boogeyman of secular liberalism. Uh, the moral majority was formed out of the, the, these um, pro-segregation chapters, and that was really the emergence of the national religious right. Uh, so. I argue that historically we can't understand the contemporary religious right as anything other than really a kind of response to the successes of the African-American Christian-led civil rights movement. Yeah, and the movement to integrate our schools and and our churches and, and, you know, just American life in general. Tell me about this guy. I'm going to play a clip here. Um, Let me make sure I've got the right one. Yeah, here it is. Uh, this is Paul Weyrich, if I'm pronouncing his name right. This is in 1980. He's in a church basement in, in Dallas, Texas, talking to a group of evangelicals uh, who are Republican activists. He's, he's a co-founder of the Heritage Foundation. He's working on the Reagan campaign when he gives this speech. And here he is. Now, many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome, good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. Now, he play, he shows up in your book. Tell us about this. Yeah, and I mean, what, a, what an appropriate uh, clip to be thinking about right now. Uh, so Paul Eric is, is, is known as one of, one of the architects of the religious right. He was, uh, had this vision for creating a new base for the conservative movement in, within white evangelicalism uh, and really helped to mobilize Jerry Falwell, who became the first national leader of the religious right who remained really significant uh, for decades. Um, uh, so Weyrich's vision was both in terms of founding the Heritage Foundation, in terms of being central to the moral majority, was to mobilize Christ, uh, white evangelical Christians uh, to form 
the base of the Republican Party. Uh, and as the clip showed, right, he had a very authoritarian view of politics, right, in terms of wanting limited government, but also was very clear about not supporting like an expansive multiracial democracy. It was very okay with limiting, limiting democracy as well. Right. In the book, you talk about traveling to Colorado Springs and your experience. In fact, it's a very personal book. We're talking with Sophie Bjork James, uh, who wrote The Divine Institution, this new book, White Evangelicalism. I, I, I always mangle this word Evangelicalism's Politics of the Family. Um, tell us about Colorado Springs and why, why there. I don't have any personal connection to Colorado Springs. I was very interested in studying this question that. I found very intriguing, which is like what allows for the very broad spread political agreement within white evangelicalism. Uh, you know, the, I was attending churches in different parts of the country and listening to Christian radio. And, you know, what I found is that in terms of churches, there was, there were most church sermons are not very overtly political in terms of most pastors aren't telling, I mean, some do, but most don't say, you know, who you should vote for or will, most won't rail against the homosexual agenda, et cetera. Um, but white evangelicals have been voting as a block pretty much since the late 1970s, right? About 80% uh, of white evangelicals vote for the Republican candidate in each election. Um, that went up slightly uh, in in terms of support for Trump. So I was really interested in what allowed for that political agreement. Uh, so Colorado Springs had is known kind of tongue-in-cheek as the Evangelical Vatican, um, starting in the 90s. It attracted, uh, at one point, over 100 evangelical organizations, uh, there, including Focus on the Family, which is uh, – the most significant white evangelical institution. Uh, it has it's, it has such a dominant place in Colorado Springs. It has its own uh, marker on the freeway saying where the exit is. It um, receives at one point so much mail it had its own zip code because uh, Christians would write in from all over the world asking for advice on wow. families. Um, and it's just very central. So it's James several, Dobson, right? Right. James Dobson founded it and then he, he retired about 10 years ago and then started a different family ministry that's also in Colorado Springs. Um, but yeah, there's, there's several large churches of between, you know, over 7,000 members. Uh, and so it's a highly concentrated space for studying white evangelicalism. A lot of the people that I got to know through my research would talk about living in the a Christian bubble where almost everyone that they spent time with was also a Christian. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Sophie is an anthropologist and a, an assistant professor of Vanderbilt University in the anthropology department. And it's, it's a brilliant book. We'll do it. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So, Sophie, when you went to Colorado Springs, would you just, like, show up? Here I am? I mean, tell us about the experience. Yeah, I mean, I was nervous. I was a, a graduate student coming from New York City. I am not a Christian myself and was very clear with everyone that I wasn't. And so I was really expecting, you know, a lot of prejudice or, you know, concern about me. And I was actually really welcomed into the community. I just started 
emailing pastors and, you know, Bible study leaders, uh, you know, most of these large churches, even if there's 12,000 members, you know, most uh, people participate in these um, Bible study groups, which can be organized around anything from motorcycle enthusiasts, you know, to uh, gardeners, hiking groups, uh, uh, all around, you know, studying the Bible or talking about the Bible, but also doing activities that individuals enjoy. So I just started emailing um, and calling, uh, you know, Bible study leaders and pastors and, um, you know, was pretty immediately um, found myself in a pretty broad community of, of folks attending Bible. I attended about 10 different uh, Bible study groups throughout my year of research there, um, interviewed around 100 evangelicals. So uh, everyone from, uh, you know, youth pastors, senior pastors, women's pastors, everyday everyday Christians, um, media, and media producers. Um, so it was a pretty, I got a pretty broad broad glimpse about um, the kind of evangelical world in Colorado. If, if you don't mind my asking, are, are you Jewish? Because there's a huge contingent of evangelicals who are literally focused on converting Jews to Christianity. I'm not Jewish. Okay. I am unaffiliated. But okay. yes, there is the... Um, there's a large church in Colorado Springs that, yeah, prioritizes evangelizing to Jews. Uh, you know, a lot of evangelicals believe that, you know, Jews are God's chosen people and that God wants them to now convert to Christianity. So, but no, I was unaffiliated. And so that in, in some ways I was a blank slate. So a lot of people really hoped that I would convert and got, ups, you know, slightly upset as the year as the year went on and I did not. To Christianity or to evangelical Christianity? Oh, yes. Or both? I, they, both. So d did you present yourself as, uh, you know, I'm an anthropologist, I look at how cultures work, and I'm here to study yours? Yep, yep, pretty much. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's complicated when you are not a Christian and studying evangelicals, because they always see... Uh, your presence as a chance to try to convert you uh, mm. and you know see that as you know it's like I would have people say things like well I'm sure God brought you uh, you know to me <laughs> for a mm. reason um, and so would see you know they the, um, really work hard at trying to see everything through this religious lens um, everything from one's food choices one's exercise habits to one spends time with um, and how one votes um, you know, I think we, when we think about when evangelicals are represented politically um, and, and in the press, we often are just, you know, see them as political actors. And, you know, what I, what, what was very clear through my research is that, you know, they adopt this, you know, religious view of the world. Sophie, so you, you, you go to Colorado Springs, you, you meet with over a hundred of these uh, evangelical groups and, and Bible study groups and hang out with them. You're right up front with them that you're, you're not a Christian, you're unaffiliated in any way with any religion or church. You are an anthropologist and, and you're here to essentially study them. Uh, many of them respond to you as if, uh, oh, God must have brought this person to me. Fresh meat, basically. How would you best describe the worldview as an anthropologist, of the people that that you were meeting, that you were that you were studying, as it were, when you were there, my experience was that in people individually were incredibly kind, and that there was a huge ethic in terms of, you know, embracing, uh, you know, and being kind to anyone who you meet. And I definitely experienced that in terms of people's generosity towards me. But I also really came to see that. Uh, hierarchy is incredibly important in that worldview, uh, and so my my interest was in looking at what allows for this, you know, really significant political unity within white evangelicalism. And what I what I found is that an emphasis on the nuclear family, on you know, a, a father, a wife, and children, is kind of the cornerstone of their entire theology. Um, so it's the center of their kind of lived lived experience. So many churches will organize Bible studies based on whether you're a young, young adult or you're married or you're an empty nester, right? And so it's organized based on how you fit into the nuclear family. Um, and, you know, I came to see like almost every sermon 
it's the there's some there's some evangelical feminists that want to have women ordained as ministers uh, in practice. That's incredibly rare. So all of the main pastors, all the elders and overseers, like everyone in positions of authority in these churches, are men. You know, there could be women overseeing a women's or children's ministry, uh, but it's all the positions of authority are men. And most of the pastors, when they preach on Sunday mornings or Wednesday evenings or Thursday evenings, there's a lot of there's a lot of preaching and that happens in these churches. But most will, you know, bring in stories about you know, a fight they got in with their wife or mother-in-law at the Walmart parking lot as a way to kind of make the Bible make sense. Right. It reinforces the importance of this nuclear family. Sophie, I wanted to do a little deeper dive into both, um, uh, basically, uh, the, the patriarchy aspect of uh, the white evangelical movement and also the racial aspect of it. If we can uh, take those separately, you were talking just before we were so rudely interrupted by the break at the bottom of the hour about your experience of, of you know, basically an, uh, an institution with all-male leadership, which in some ways I, I suppose kind of mirrors the Catholic Church. I don't know to what extent they drew from that or if they're just both drawing from a patriarchal uh, institution. Um, and I'd love your thoughts on that. Um, but uh, why and how is this the case that that the, at the core of the white evangelical movement is this idea of the family. And what impact does that have on people who grow up in this movement who are not uh, straight men and women or boys and girls? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, you know, the I think the, the long history of evangelicalism is that you know, before Protestant, you know, before, before the birth of Protestantism, uh, it was the Catholic Church. And the so in terms of, you know, the European Christianity, patriarchy was incredibly central. Uh, it was the kind of defining, it was a, the, one of the defining features of Christianity. And so despite having, you know, a, like a, a, a long, unique history of its own, Protestantism and particularly evangelical Protestantism, um, you know, has inherited the emphasis on patriarchy. And despite there being some evangelical feminists that are trying to change that, um, you know, I spent a year in Colorado Springs, as I mentioned, I interviewed over 100 people, and no one complained about it. No one pointed it out. No one said we should have more women ordained as ministers or more women preachers. It was kind of just like the the background that never got commented on, but, you know, was the, like, made the institution run. So, you know, I, I found that one of the, the reason why it's so central is that in the evangelical worldview, everyone needs to learn to submit to God, uh, and that there's a very clear relation, there's, there's, a, there's very clear relationships of authority and submission that need to stay in place in order to kind of ground this uh, theological worldview into daily life, and that patriarchy, and especially in the family, so is incredibly central, right? So within a patriarchal family, there's a very there's a very clear hierarchy in that worldview of like men have the power, they're supposed to be the leaders, women are the followers, and then the children are the followers of the parents. And that the parents actually kind of represent God to the children um, in the family. And you know, I think we have a we need more nuance when we talk about patriarchy because it's often talked about as though there's one form of patriarchy, uh, and there there isn't. There's multiple forms of patriarchy, and the kinds that the the evangelicals that I got to know in Colorado Springs embrace, you know, they, they we could say it's like a kinder, gentler patriarchy where men are supposed to have you know majority of the power in the household. But they're also supposed to be kind and servants themselves to their wives, and their wives are supposed to have power. And in a lot of relationships, uh, the very that I observed, at least very clearly, the women, you know, often would make more money and have like more dominant personalities, and you know, talk more, and like they, you know, but they would still say like I defer to my husband, and the husband is in charge. Um, but that that hierarchy within the family in a heterosexual marriage is kind of a you know, minor symbol of this broader hierarchy of 
you know, the individual with Jesus, right? Is that we, everyone is supposed to submit to Jesus and like lead to learn that submission in terms of being a good Christian and that the family is the way that that um, submission is learned and practiced uh, and becomes, you know, as I describe it, a divine institution. Well, um, so what happens... I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was I was just going to add, you know, it, 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 that that's at the core of our entire culture of, of what we call Western civilization. This this idea of patriarchy as well. Right, right, and that there's different, you know, different manifestations of that, and in evangelical culture, it's very explicit, yeah. um, and that patriarchy really gets uh, helps to define opposition to same-sex rights. Um, and same-sex equality, because if you have a marriage between two women or two men, there's no inherent hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. Clearly in those relationships, there often is hierarchy, but it's not established in the same way that gender allows for those relationships to be seen as hierarchical. Um, and that egalitarianism or perceived egalitarianism um, kind of turns the entire evangelical order on its head. Uh, and thus creates a huge backlash against it. Um, so for my research, I actually attended one of the last Exodus International Conferences, which was a conference designed to help people, they say Christians with the, they would describe it as unwanted same-sex attraction um, to over, overcome their, their attractions. Uh, and I interviewed um, over a dozen people who identified as either ex-gay, so people who formerly identified as gay, who now identify as either heterosexual or at least no longer gay, as well as a number of people who identify as ex-ex-gay, which is a little tongue-in-cheek, but people who said they were, you know, tried to be ex-gay and then came back and realized that was, that was who they are. Uh, and really through those stories, along with um, interviews with parents, like, you know, heterosexual parents, evangelical parents with uh, gay, lesbian, or bisexual or trans children, um, saw that there's just very widespread ostracism happening within evangelical culture against people who either identify as queer, identify as trans, or even just support LGBT rights. You know, I interviewed a number of moms who, you know, had you know, came from an evangelical worldview, um, were opposed to LGBT rights. They had a kid that came out, eventually came to realize that a lot of kids kill themselves because of rejection from parents and rejection from culture and came to the point where they realized that they were actually doing harm through, uh, you know, opposing, opposing sexual diversity. And, you know, through supporting their children, ended up getting kicked out of their churches. Um, it's not uncommon um, to happen. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that there is this kind of slow-moving river across evangelical culture of people starting to realize that the they are doing harm by opposing LGBT rights, uh, and that's happening at every level of evangelical culture. Um, but the vast majority of evangelicals continue to oppose um, rights for sexual um, minorities, and I found it was explicitly because of patriarchy. Uh, you know, we don't always think about these as related, but, you know, the um, same-sex relationships really challenge this patriarchal model that sees everything in the world as needing to fit within these hierarchies. Yeah. And it's a powerful motivator then to oppose, um, yeah, people with um, different forms of sexual identities. You, you uh, co-edited a book called Beyond Populism, Angry Politics and the Twilight of Neoliberalism. And I'm working on a book on neoliberalism right now, so I've been reading a lot of Hayek and, and uh, uh, Friedman and whatnot. And Hayek in particular uh, goes out of his way to say that if we shift everything over to the market and essentially do away with government outside of some very narrow areas like police and military, that it only works if there is a, a superstructure or a cultural infrastructure that is moral. And he defines morality as the family. The family is the essential uh, element of morality and, and, and comes right out in addition to, uh, well, Mises more the racist rants, but Hayek more the, the, the patriarchal rants. I mean, comes right out and says that that kind of hierarchy, that family hierarchy of dad's in charge is uh, not only essential to 
to uh, the survival of society, uh, in his opinion, but also is essential for, for their neoliberal philosophy to work because, you know, there's no other basic like guardrails on the marketplace. I'm wondering if, you know, having, having edited a book on neoliberalism and, and this, this book that you just wrote here, um, uh, The Divine Institution, if there's any, am I just imagining an overlap here or is there something there? Or is it just cultural coincidence? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, part of me wanted to, like, call the book, you know, the um, evangelical, the evangelical ethic and the spirit of neoliberalism, right? But they clearly go hand in hand, both in terms of the time frame um, and in terms of, yeah, the, because the, the other aspect of this, right, is that evangelicals typically support free market capitalism. So what, what I found is that, um, you know, because through this research, I also attended a number of uh, both conservative conferences and relig explicitly religious right conferences, um, listened to, like, way too much Christian radio um, for the research. And, you know, it's very clear that most evangelicals believe that God can move through the market, but he cannot move through the government. Right. So, you know, this idea that the, the market somehow is susceptible to God, God, to God and to God's influence. Uh, but, you know, the government, the welfare programs, um, you know, like family leave policies, you know, support, like even like food benefits for children uh, can is often framed as a way to oppose God's work in the world, right? And so there's this incredible valorization, you know, like bringing in a, a religious moral logic to um, austerity, saying that austerity is actually um, a way to increase um, people's exposure to God. Wow. Uh, you know, so when, you know, you can think about it in terms of if there's poverty, you know, uh, having programs that help children eat is a moral, is a, is a moral claim. But for evangelicals who see the government as only stopping God's movement in the world, right. they can oppose that. Right. And they quote Jesus saying, you know, the poor will be with you always, uh, you know, or have been and will be. This is really interesting because, you know, neoliberalism has had such an influence on the Republican Party in the United States, obviously also on the Democratic Party, you know, with Bill Clinton's embrace of it, of a, maybe a softer, gentler form of neoliberalism, but, uh, and Tony Blair's. But um, to, you know, you said earlier that you didn't see a big connection between, or you didn't hear a lot of politics being preached from the pulpit. And yet 80% of the evangelical, uh, you know, self-identified evangelicals, white evangelicals, were voting for Donald Trump in the last election, which seems counterintuitive given who he is. Um, can you speak to that issue of politics and religion and, uh, you know, within the white evangelical movement? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think what's happened is that within, I mean, partly because of abortion, that was the one political topic that I heard frequently. Um, some opposition to LGBT rights, but I mean, the one, the one, you know, topic that, you know, pastors would just kind of mention offhand or there'd be circulating um, petitions in the churches was about opposing abortion uh, as though as abortion, framing abortion is the most important, you know, moral, political issue. Um, but that there's become this kind of common sense way that uh, if you're going to be an evangelical, you're going to be a conservative Republican. I mean, James Dobson had this quote saying, like, you don't have to be a Christian to be a conservative, um, but if you're going to, but you, you basically, um, if you're going to be a, like, but you basically that all all Christians will be conservative. If you are a Christian, you will be conservative. Um, and so I found, you know, this was par partly an kind of interesting twist of fate in terms of my methods, is that I had people, um, because I'm not a Christian, I ended up in interviewing people who then would introduce me to other Christians who had converted to Christianity as adults. Um, and I realized it was probably because they wanted me to, as a non-Christian to see, you know, what, you know, how, how amazing it would be to convert as, a, as an adult. Uh, but I ended up through those, through interviewing, I think about 15 people who had converted to Christianity um, as, a, as an adult found that, I mean, for the people kind of narrate, you know, their conversion story and 
as inseparable from a political conversion. Their religious conversion was inseparable from a political conversion. So one of the best examples of this was I interviewed someone who worked for a conservative Christian organization who talked about, um, he was probably in his 60s at the time, and talked about, you know, being this kind of like freewheeling, you know, free love um, uh, hippie, and then living in the Bay Area, and then um, converting to evangelicalism after his boss invited him to attend his church. And, you know, he was like, yeah, you know, I used to be all about, um, you know, sex, love, drugs, and rock and roll, and, you know, and now here I am. And, like, we looked around his, his office where, it's like, he lives and breathes this religious right agenda. And I, you know, in all of these interviews, I try to have people step back and be like, okay, well, when did you change your politics? And how did that happen? And often people would just, it was like they couldn't even separate them, right? That conversion meant not just becoming, believing in Jesus and just, you know, um, reading the Bible, attending church, but also it involved, often involved this political worldview. It's almost impossible to separate, at least for the people who are within the white evangelical movement, their politics from their religion. And we only have about, I don't know, maybe four minutes left here. I wanted to also get to race as well. But just very quickly, I'm, I'm curious, which infiltrated the other? Or why are they so closely correlated? Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I, I think it, in some ways it goes back to the kind of foundation, the emergence of the religious right, because it, it really coincided with um, the explosion of evangelicalism in the United States. Right where today the vast majority of Christians in the U.S. are evangelical, um, the what we call the mainline Protestant denominations, um, like the Methodists, have been declining in numbers um, for decades. And so, the, with the emergence of the religious right, it comes um, simultaneously to this expansion of evangelicalism uh, in the United States. But you know, I think tying tying together the pol politics and race here is that. Evangelicalism is entirely focused on relationships. You know, so the patriarchal family is central as this, uh, you know, kind of node of relationships that people live out their faith. But it's all about, in, you know, the morality is, and, you know, and Christianity and spirituality are all, uh, you know, manifest in personal relationships. And what that means is that structural reality is invisible. Uh, so, any, and I that, that goes for things like poverty, right? Poverty isn't about, um, you know, a history of econ economic policies, right, that lead to, um, right, excessive CEO pay and, you know, decreasing um, wages for the majority of Americans. It's poverty is about individuals who may not have the best values at home, mm. right, who aren't actually applying themselves, right? It's all, and so the solution to poverty is not through policy, but through befriending a homeless, you know, a middle-class person befriending a homeless person and helping teach them better values, right, et cetera. It's all through individual relationships. Uh, so that also means uh, structural racism is also invisible, right? And so racism is about, you know, a problem of, like, an individual psyche. As someone may have personal prejudice that then can be overcome. So the, all of, you know, frequently of the evangelicals that I got to know in Colorado Springs would talk about racism as a sin and racism as a problem and Bible studies would sometimes uh, talk about Mormonism as though Mormonism has this huge race problem and Christianity can't be racist, uh, you know, because they understood racism is about, you know, this problem of like a moral conscious, an individual problem, as opposed to a structural problem, right, that privileges um, certain people based on race while, um, you know, perpetuating oppression based on others, right? So something like police brutality or, you know, in... Uh, in Nashville, there's this report that came out a few years ago called Driving While Black, where uh, the police actually tip, um, were pulling over, like, statistically more African-Americans every year than actually lived in town, hmm. right? But those issues become, like, like invisible back, the invisible. They can't, um, not something that you can even imagine it's because like white privilege everything on is about the individual. One, <laughs> it's, it's that... And so I think that it really brings in both race and politics into this particular theological yeah, tradition. That's remarkable. The book, The Divine Institution, White Evangelicalism's Politics of the Family by Sophie Bjork James. Sophie, thanks so much for being with us today and for this, for this whole hour. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks so much for the conversation. My pleasure. And thanks for writing a brilliant book. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, so topic two here that I want to put on the table for us all. This is just a, a, a tragic story, and I think it, it, it doesn't get anywhere near enough attention. You will recall that three weeks ago, Donald Trump did a rally, almost four weeks ago now, Donald Trump did a rally in Coleman, Alabama, and 45,000 Trump cultists showed up. Now, what might be the consequence of that? Well, this guy, his name is uh, Ray Martin Demonia, or Demonia, I'm not, D-E-M-O-N-I-A, uh, let's, let's assume it's Demonia, uh, from Meridian, Mississippi, which is nearby. He's a uh, Coleman native. He was three days shy of his 74th birthday. Uh, presumably is vaccinated from everything I'm reading from his obituary. Uh, they don't come out and say it, but you know his, his obituary is a plea to people to get vaccinated. He had a heart attack. He didn't have COVID. He had a heart attack. And he needed to go to the hospital for his heart attack. And so he called up the Coleman Regional Medical Center. The, this is you know, the, the, the hospital in the town where Donald Trump had 45,000 cultists three weeks ago. They were slammed. They had no room in the hospital. So they started calling other hospitals. They called 34 hospitals in a 200-mile radius, and finally they found one that was more than 200 miles away in another state in Mississippi, the Rush Foundation Hospital. And by the time they got him there, he was dead from a heart attack because every single hospital within a 200-mile radius of where Donald Trump held his rally was filled to the gills, so filled to the gills with, with uh, COVID patients that they couldn't treat a guy with a heart attack. In his obituary, his family said, in honor of Ray, please get vaccinated if you have not, in an effort to free up resources for non-COVID-related emergencies. We would not want any other family to go through what we did. Meanwhile, we've got the, uh, and, and, and this is just, you know, totally bizarre, is Veronica Wolski. This is a woman who, uh, the, uh, she was in a hospital in, um, it's the Amida Health Resurrection Medical Center in, in uh, Chicago, in the Chicago area. And uh, Veronica Walski was a QAnon fan, a Trump fan, who was famous for hanging a banner over a bridge in Chicago. And uh, Lynn Wood, you know, the, the lawyer who filed all the Trump lawsuits about uh, voter fraud, he urged his 814,000 Telegram followers to call a hospital and demand that she be given ivermectin. They did. They overwhelmed the hospital. The hospital said, sorry, ivermectin is not an approved drug for COVID, we're not going to give it to her. She died, and now Lynn Wood is, is having, he says, it's our responsibility to ensure that these medical murders stop now and the perpetrators be brought to justice. Veronica will be on her bridge in heaven looking down at us. We must do our best to make sure Veronica did not leave this earth in vain. And so people are, you know, he says he's going to sue the Amita Resurrection Hospital for complicity in murder. And he put out the hospital's phone number 
and along with a note that said, let this hospital hear your voices now. They are being slammed with calls to the point, I, I, I mean, this is, this is insane. How do you do business if you're being slammed with crackpot calls accusing you of murder? The CDC, by the way, also says now that the uh, number of people in the U.S. calling poison control centers from suffering the ad, bad side effects of ivermectin, five times higher than it was, you know, just a month or three ago. By the way, Stormy Daniels says, <laughs> well, here's the setup. Donald Trump was the, the Holyfield uh, Belford fight. This guy's like in his 50s, I think. Yeah, and he's in the boxing ring because the guy who was supposed to be there got COVID. Um, but in any case, I mean, it was just, it was pathetic. The whole match that Donald Trump was paid an obscene amount of money to, um, to uh, call on 9-11. This is what he did instead of commemorating 9-11. It lasted 81 seconds. Stormy Daniels comes out and says, yeah, that's about right. Denmark has lifted all COVID curves. No more COVID limitations. No more any of that stuff, right? Everything's good in Denmark now. Why? Because they introduced vaccine passports six months ago in March of this year. I don't know if that's exactly six months. I'd have to count on my fingers, but you know, a, a while ago in, sp in the spring, they, they introduced vaccine passports and they began vaccinating people. 96% of people 65 or older are vaccinated in Denmark. And 73% of the, uh, the rest of their whole population, and because that doesn't include kids, basically what that means is every adult in Denmark is vaccinated for all practical purposes. And so on Saturday, this was day before yesterday, they had a sold out concert in Copenhagen, 50,000 people, the first in Europe. This is how this story from France 24, the, the television network France 24 starts. With no masks in sight, buzzing offices and concerts drawing tens of thousands, Denmark on Friday ditches vaccine passports in nightclubs, ending its last COVID curb. They were abolished at all venues starting September 1st except nightclubs, and now, they have, uh, now they've opened it for nightclubs. Emil Bendix, a 26-year-old concert goer, says, being in the crowd, singing like before, it almost made me forget COVID and everything we've been through these past months. Loni Simonson, an epidemiologist, said, we are aiming for free movement. What will happen now is that the virus will circulate and it will find the ones who are not vaccinated, which is just a very tiny fragment of Danish society. Like many countries, Denmark has, throughout the pandemic, implemented public health and social measures to reduce transmission. But at the same time, this is from uh, the World Health Organization's emergency officer. Her name is Catherine Smallwood. But at the same time, it has greatly relied on individuals and communities to voluntarily comply. And they have in Denmark. Because they haven't had a right-wing political party or a right-wing media. There's no Fox News in Denmark. There's nobody... Nobody, well, they have right-wing media. I mean, I, I did my show from Copenhagen. I interviewed the guy, uh, Peter Morgensen, I, as I recall his name was, who was the publisher of the, uh, the newspaper that published the, the Muslim cartoons that had all the blowback back in the day. And, you know, he's, he's a right-winger. But, but the right-wingers in Denmark are not saying don't get vaccinated. They don't have right-wing idiots in, vax, in, in, in Denmark, anti-vax idiots. At this moment, in the entire country, now keep in mind this country is only about 6 million people, but in the entire country there's only 130 people in the hospital. They started giving the third dose to people last week. Why can't we do that here? Jessica in Chicago, watch this on Free Speech TV. Hey Jessica, what's up? Hi Tom, that was a brilliant rant. Thank you. And you made me feel good at the end. Yes. And, um... These crazy school board meetings need to be on Zoom until these Trumpster parents learn how to control themselves. I agree. Um, uh, this weekend, my husband and I were talking. My husband was saying the school board could set up, uh, have the meetings, but set up laptops and have, um, have the crazy parents in there, but the school board uh, each is on their laptop. Um, answering questions with the members and i said for a joke i said 
maybe they should put the filters on too. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, put rabbit ears on them. Um, <laughs> so, but, yeah. but Jessica, let me let me make what you just said into actual into an actual serious policy suggestion. All across America, there are people who, uh, you know, not a lot, but there are people who have a tripod and a camera in their home, you know, who, who uh, like I said, not a lot, maybe one or two percent of Americans, but, but if, and, and, and know how to plug it into their computer and stream stuff to the internet. If, if folks like that, with that little tiny slice of technical expertise, were to contact their local school board and say, you know, if you're worried about being intimidated, please let me come in and let's just live stream the whole thing. I'll take care of the technical end of it. You just let, yeah. me, let me be there and do it with you. And, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Brilliant things might be said, stupid things might be said, but let me stream the school board meetings. I think that'd be a huge public service. And, and, and I would like to encourage anybody who's watching who has that technical ability or who has, you know, a kid or a friend who has that te technical ability to volunteer their services to the local school board meeting, or if the school board will allow it, uh, you know, m without necessarily getting the official approval of the school board, but not having their disapproval, um, just show up and do it. Mm -hmm. um, I was happy to hear that they actually arrested the Trumpsters who were violent at the last meeting, and they need to hold them accountable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, these, these guys go on Twitter under, under pseudonyms where only Jack Dorsey knows who they really are, or on Facebook under pseudonyms where you don't know who they really are very often, or, you know, sometimes, and, and act like sociopaths. But, you know, when, when you're on camera in a school board meeting, it's fairly easy to figure out who you actually are. And you would think that that would moderate their behavior. And I think what you're suggesting, Jessica, that we start Zoom, you know, live Zoom or Skype or whatever, you know, you know, live, live streaming school board meetings and other public events, by the way, I'd say city council meetings as well. And, and you know, any, any place else where these guys are showing up yes, is, is absolutely safe. brilliant. I think that's absolutely brilliant. I, I you know, I, I may borrow that idea and turn it into an op-ed with your permission. Yes, do. Okay. I love you. Thank do. you. Okay. Jessica, I think, I think you're onto something. And let me just say, once, once again, if, if anybody, if you, you who are watching, right, or, or listening, um, if you have the technical expertise to offer to, to the local school board to Zoom their meetings, um, contact them and see if you can get their permission to do it let's let's get this stuff out there because they need they need protection and this this by the way would also apply I think to any meetings of, of uh, election officials I don't know if they have public meetings or not though I, I I suspect that they don't but Jessica brilliant thank you for the call Annie in Sugar Grove North Carolina hey Annie what's on your mind oh I just wanted to add to your story about that hospital uh, mm -hmm. in Alabama Okay. I live in a small rural county in North Carolina, like six miles from Tennessee, mm -hmm. and the doctors here at the local hospital, they held a care vigil last week, and uh, there's a huge article about it and what they're up against. Uh, one of the doctors reminded me of what happened to that guy in Alabama. This doctor said she personally called up eight hospitals in two different states looking for beds for her patients that need emergent specialty surgery. Wow. You know, like if I had an appendicitis attack, I would be dead here. I yeah. would be dead. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, and there was the, a guy uh, last the, week uh, who died who died of uh, gallstones. Right. I mean, these are conditions yeah. that, yeah, back yeah. in the 19th century, they killed people. <laughs> but, right. You know. And then the the, um, the director of the spiritual care uh, portion of the hospital, she says, and I know this woman personally, she says, never in my 23 years have I encountered anything so horrific as the last 18 months. Illness and death during the course of the COVID-19 pandemic is qualitatively different. Yeah. She yeah. says she sees these, you know, uh, her uh, staff, the staff working in the hospital, they're exhausted. They're, they've got fear and pain and anger. And one of the doctors said that these, these <laughs> medical people, they just can't go on like this much longer. Maybe they well, need I'm to start, maybe instead I'm, of setting up their triage centers and their overflow centers in the parking lots of the hospitals, they need to start setting them up in the offices of the local Republican Party. Yeah, yeah. Virginia Fox is my representative, and then my two senators are Tom Tillis and Richard Burr, 
and Richard Burr's office had the audacity to say, oh, no, he's been promoting vaccines since the very beginning. I'm like, where? Where? I've seen no press releases. I've seen nothing. All right. Um, and my three that I have, my two senators and my one representative, they're worthless. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Well, hopefully, Annie, this is going to mobilize some voters. Annie, thank you very much for the call. Great talking with you. Thanks. And thanks for watching with Free Speech TV. Adam in New Orleans. Hey, boy, we had a lot of calls from New Orleans. You you, must have gotten your power back on, too, Adam. Yeah, uh, we we were fortunate. We had a, a generator. Thanks for asking. Um, um, reason I'm calling, um, one of the worst things that Trump did was weaponize the, the Department of Justice. Now, Ryan Grimm's uh, article on Manchin's daughter and wife, how they basically abused monopoly power uh, associated with the epipen, uh, raising the cost from 100 to $600, which probably killed people. If Biden tries to use that as a stick to get mansion to come off of his position on the filibuster isn't that weaponizing of the department of justice using the doj is not the way to do it number one number two exactly. his his daughter has uh left the company and in, in fact the way that she did it is she if my understanding is correct well, let me just qualify this by saying you know i'm i haven't done a deep dive on this i've just read a couple of articles in the new york times and other places but my understanding is that uh, Heather Bresch, I think is her name, uh, Joe Manchin's daughter, that uh, that company was sold to a much larger international company and has closed down its West Virginia factory, throwing like a thousand people out of work. And, and this was just a couple of weeks ago. And just basically walked away with the money. Um, his, his daughter's a multimillionaire now. His son is a multimillionaire because the energy companies that Joe Manchin started, the coal companies, he has turned over to his son. He still owns some stock in them. He made a half a million last year in dividends, apparently, according to the reporting in The Intercept. Um, but I don't think that the DOJ should be going after this. I, I think that this is up to the voters of West Virginia. And there is a huge movement in West Virginia. I was talking yesterday with, with Troy Miller, who um, has been my editor on, uh, so far on all of the Hidden History books. Um, he lives in West Virginia. Troy, Troy and I used to work together in Washington, D.C. when our show was in D.C. Um, and in fact, he was a producer of the show for a while, and and, uh, and and Troy is very active now in West Virginia politics. He's from West Virginia. He was born there, grew up there, has a really beautiful, thick West Virginia accent. And there are two major groups that are working kind of hand in glove: progressive groups in West Virginia. Um, one of them specifically, I think it's called Stop Joe Mansion dot something, either com or org. Um, but uh, I tweeted it if you want to actually on Sunday I, I tweeted that group out if you want to see it just go look at my Twitter feed and to get the right URL and the right group and uh, you know Manchin's not re up for re-election for another four years or three and a half years but there's and, and of course the, the freak out is oh my god you know if you take him down he'll get replaced by a Republican um, but the people in West Virginia on the ground in West Virginia point out that Bernie beat Hillary in the 2016 primary in West Virginia by like 30 points. I mean, it was massive. It was a blowout. Um, what, what, the reason why West Virginia went for Trump so overwhelmingly in, in, you know, in the last two elections was that, particularly in 2016 actually, was that Trump was saying that he was going to stop neoliberalism, that he was going to end the you know, business as usual. He was going to bring back our factories. He was going to tax rich people. He was going to do a bunch of stuff that he, he never succeeded in doing. Bernie was saying he was going to do those same things. So if you get a genuine progressive in West Virginia, they will vote for, for you know, I mean, West Virginia was a blue state for a long, long, long time. And so I, th you know, I think that that's the way to do it, Adam. And and uh, you know, and from people for people out of state, uh, is, is to support those organizations in state. Um, so uh, it's more a function of time. And I, I appreciate what you're saying, Tom. Um, you're not going to stop in in less than four years, though. Yeah. Oh, then then the Democratic agenda is toast. Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, you and I are probably not going to stop him, and this movement in West Virginia may or may not be able to pressure him, but the one person who does have enormous power over Joe Manchin is Joe Biden. And that's where I started my op-ed today and, and my rant tonight, you know, this morning, which is that uh, you know, the word has leaked out from Chuck Schumer's office that he had a phone conversation with Joe Biden over the weekend or last Friday, 
in which Biden said, I'm ready to start calling these senators who are opposed to the filibuster and, you know, bending some arms. And, uh, you know, I'm assuming that that's going to be happening this week. And uh, so, you know, stay tuned, I guess. Would, I hope so. I hope yeah, so. I hope so, too. Um, I, you know, and, and for the moment, we have to remember, Joe Manchin is a Democrat. He is caucusing with the Democrats. By and large, he's voting with the Democrats. Um, I think, you know, he's got a couple of areas where, where he wants to, um, you know, which have to do with fossil fuels and taxes, where he's dancing to the tune of the Coke agenda, basically, and, and all of the, you know, the, the fossil fuel and petrobillionaires. And he himself is a fossil fuel multimillionaire. And, and so, you know, you've got to just kind of take that into consideration. But um, outside of those things, Joe Manchin actually has some pretty good positions. So, so let's, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Let's work. And, and I think that's why Bernie was so gentle with him on CNN over the weekend where Dana Bash was talking to both of them. She did a really good job with that. Adam, I got to run, but thank you for the call. And thanks for watching us there in New Orleans. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.